Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is our deep dive episode looking back on the November sitting. We're bringing on Aiken Gump's Pratik Shaw to talk about the Obamacare argument. We'll also look at Barrett's first arguments and how the Supreme Court still won't be deciding this election. Not of this recording anyway. And Justice Alito finally told us what's on his mind. (laughs) Kimberly, let's get this election thing out of the way first. Last time we spoke about this, it was to explain to our listeners how the Supreme Court is not going to be a factor, a la Bush v. Gore. That's still the case, but just to put a pin in that, explain to us why that is. Sure. So um, just to refresh, there's been a challenge pending for ever since September, really. So this isn't a new challenge. Uh, Challenging the deadlines that were extended to receive mail-in ballots. And the issue here is whether or not a state court was authorized to extend that deadline or whether it had to be done by the legislature. Uh, The Supreme Court ordered that these ballots be separated from all the others so that in case there was a post-election challenge and the Supreme Court struck them down, they could be easily identified. But we learned from the Secretary of State that there are just uh, 10,000 of these ballots that arrived after uh, Election Day. And so that is not enough to uh, undo Joe Biden's lead in Pennsylvania. And so, yes, the Supreme Court is not going to decide this election. All right. Let's get down to business then. Justice Barrett's first sitting... What did we learn about her, if anything, as the lawyers say? You know, the first sittings can really be um, instructive uh, to learn about how a new justice is going to change the dynamic of the court. So, you know, one thing that I often think about is on just his second day of arguments, Justice Gorsuch actually, in a jurisdictional case, interrupted the chief justice um, about which highway ran through Montana um, and actually had to interrupt again later because he had gotten it wrong. But (laughs) that really gives you a taste of Justice Gorsuch, right? Like he's very sure of himself. He's an aggressive questioner. uh, And, you know, that's something that we saw early and that has carried out um, on his time at the court. The problem for Justice Barrett is these cases are are being argued remotely, right? So there's not the same kind of free-for-all dynamic um, that you have in the courtroom. It's every justice has a couple of minutes to ask questions. So we really didn't learn a lot about what kind of style of questioner she'll be and how she'll change the dynamic on the bench. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the way that these this questioning has been going, it's just been harder, I think, to cover in general, just because you don't get a sense of where the court's going. I mean, sometimes you do when they go out of their way to tell us what they're thinking, but it is kind of harder to get a sense in some of these closer cases. Um, one one argument that I thought was interesting with Barrett, the Fulton case that talked about uh, Philadelphia and this Catholic social services agency not wanting to work with same-sex couples. Barrett raised a hypothetical dealing with abortion, which was not directly at issue in the case. You can get some exceptions for some medical procedures, but every hospital has to perform abortions. In that context, do we analyze this as a licensing question, or given that the Catholic hospital can't even enter the business without this contract, 
do you still say that this was the provision of a contractual service? You know, that's not something that's going to make or break the argument. But when you talk about people laying low, obviously, it wasn't something that she had to inject into it. So obviously, that's the type of thing that's on her mind. But as you say, it's one of these things that it's going to have to play out more to see what her style is going to be at argument. So um, on the topic of laying low, uh, <laughs> Justice Samuel Alito was the keynote speaker at the Federalist Society. He um, sure was. What did you think of Justice Alito's speech? You know, it didn't leave much to the imagination. <laughs> Justice Alito, he doesn't hide his views. You know, we know that he's a very conservative justice. So the speech... And I guess just to kind of sum it up and, and encourage everyone to listen to it, it's about a half hour. You can find it on the Federalist Society website or YouTube page. Yeah. Although um, Justice Alito um, encourages you to drink um, in order before you listen to it. That's right. And maybe just to set up what, how he came to <laughs> be talking about that, you want to set that up a little bit? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, he joked, you know, Justice Alito is uh, very funny, but he is very dry. He has a very dry sense of humor, um, which I respect quite a bit. Uh, but so he he joked uh, about the fact that normally this speech happens after dinner when people have had some drinks. However, if any of you would like to enjoy a beverage in the comfort of your homes, I hope you will feel free to do so. And on the other hand, if any of you feel the urge to throw rotten tomatoes, go right ahead. You will only mess up your own screen. I, I followed his recommendation. I had a glass of wine. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, a, it was a night, so that was happening anyway. So getting into what the speech was actually about, Alito basically ticked off line by line every battle of the current legal culture war that we're in and took yeah. clearly aside on, on the right of it, some of which we've already seen in his opinions. Right. And he talks specifically about opinions, one thing that was noteworthy, not just about cases that were already decided, but cases that were already back, like that Nevada church case that we previously spoke with the lawyer for ADF about. Clearly Alito was still upset about it. And obviously, it's not something where we're learning about his views for the first time, but there's differences of opinion as to whether it's appropriate to talk about that in a public setting like this outside of the written opinion. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. He talked a lot about uh, religious freedom and how it is under attack. And he spoke about it in the context of the Little Sisters cases that we saw over the contraceptive mandate. But I kept hearing it as, you know, this Fulton argument that we were talking about involving the mm -hmm. city of Philadelphia. So he was talking about, you know, uh, there not being an injury uh, because nobody had approached the Little Sisters asking for, you know, uh, coverage under the contraceptive mandate. But that's actually the, the same argument that the Catholic Social Services is making in the Fulton case, that no same-sex couple has asked Catholic Social Services to place foster children with them. So um, it was it was notable, I think, that he did get into so many topics that are just currently pending before the court. Right. Right? Like, they, they even have a church uh, COVID case in front of them now. Exactly. And so, but here's the thing. I mean, there was no mystery about where Justice Alito is going to come down on any of these cases. And so That's people true. will criticize him and have criticized him for speaking publicly about this. But, you know, I don't 
you know, I think there's something laudatory about it in a way, in the sense that it hmm. takes away the illusion that there is this wall between law and politics and all of this stuff, and that there is a mystery as to where justices are going to come down. So it's not, the criticism seems mostly to be about the optics of it, and that it's somehow, yeah. you know, undignified or improper to talk about it. But I mean, if that's your view, that's your view. There's no mystery about this stuff, you know, take your side and defend it and see what happens, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of mysteries and unknown um, outcomes, let's chat Obamacare. Yeah, let's do it. We're going to bring on Pratik Shah, who actually argued in the infamous moot court hearing before Justice Barrett that's gotten some attention. And he actually filed a brief in the case, too, on behalf of America's health insurance plans. He's on the side of defending Obamacare. Before we bring him on, Kimberly, give us the government's side of this. Sure. So this is actually a case that's being pressed by uh, red states uh, and attorney generals in those states uh, led by Texas. But the DOJ has sided with Texas. And the issue here is really uh, in 2017, when Republicans were in charge of Congress, they zeroed out the so-called individual mandate of Obamacare. So this was really the most unpopular part of the law. This was uh, the part that said that if you don't get health insurance, then you have to pay uh, a penalty or a tax. So uh, listeners may remember that in 2012, the Supreme Court actually upheld the law with Chief Justice Roberts citing with his Democratic appointed colleagues saying that the individual mandate was a proper use of Congress's taxing power. And so now the argument is, is that now there's no longer a tax. And so the individual mandate is unconstitutional. But that really isn't the most significant part of this case. Uh, the whole ballgame really comes down to this issue of severability. And so uh, the question is whether or not the law can survive without the individual mandate. And we'll hear a little bit about, um, you know, what it seems like the direction of the court is going to go on this. But Texas and the United States say, you know, when Obamacare was passed, the Obama administration uh, kind of defended this unpopular individual mandate by saying that it was necessary uh, to make sure that, you know, health insurance uh, markets were stable. And so they said that it was essential to Obamacare. And now Texas and the DOJ are arguing, why shouldn't we take, you know, the Obama administration at its word and say that without the individual mandate, you know, the whole law uh, has to fall. So um, that's their argument. Uh, as we'll hear from Pratik, it doesn't seem like that's going to win the day, but let's let him explain that. Pratik Shaw is co-head of Aiken Gump's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. He's argued 15 cases at the court, and he clerked for Justice Breyer. Thanks so much for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Pleasure to be here. So we're talking about the Affordable Care Act, and I think uh, first things first, everyone wants to know, is the Supreme Court going to strike down the entire Obamacare legislation? Uh, no. I, and, and normally I wouldn't speak with such confidence just after an argument because often it's hard to decipher. As you well know from oral arguments, justices sometimes play devil advocate, sometimes they're talking with one another. But here I think um, the reason why I would speak with a little more confidence than normal uh, is that I think the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh, who I think most people were watching, really laid their cards out 
on the table on 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 the severability issue that is on the issue that you mentioned will the entire affordable care act mm-hmm. fall if the individual mandate does and because of that uh, I think we have a little more certainty than normal. I tend to agree with you. On that this is a very straightforward case for severability under our precedents, meaning that we would excise the mandate and leave the rest of the act in place, uh, reading our severability precedents. I think it's hard for you to argue that Congress um, intended the entire act to fall if the mandate were struck down. Uh, when the same Congress that lowered the penalty to zero uh, did not even try to repeal the rest of the act. Uh, I think, uh, frankly, that they wanted the court to do that, uh, but that's not our job. Well, and it wasn't just from um, arguments uh, this week, but we also got some hints from them from some cases last term on severability, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think those cases that you're referring to, there were two in particular, uh, one written by the Chief Justice and the other one written by uh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, that uh, raised the severability issue, that is the very legal issue about whether when one provision of, the cons- uh, of a statute is unconstitutional, whether the rest of the statute should be invalidated or not. And it could not have been lost on, the, on either the Chief Justice or Justice Kavanaugh when they wrote those opinions last term that the ACA case was coming this term and had already been granted and uh, at the time of those opinions. And so I think you're right. Uh, that is why everyone was focusing on the Chief Justice and, and Justice Kavanaugh. And I think the sentiments going in that many of us had in the argument that those opinions would foreshadow their um, thinking on the severability in this case, I think, did prove true. So we'll get into what severability means exactly. But, you know, before, you know, we wanted to get the top line conclusion out so everybody knows where this is going. But let's walk through it a little bit because there's this threshold issue of standing, which the justices could decide the case on. Right. And Pratik, you talk a little bit about how that issue could play out. Sure. So standing is basically just the concept that uh, under the Constitution, in order for you to sue, Uh, you have to actually be injured. It has to be a real case. Uh, And here, uh, there were several different theories of standing. I think at one point, the Texas SG said, we have seven different theories of standing. Uh, and, and, And because standing is one of these jurisdictional prerequisites, you only need one basis of standing for a case to go forward. So Texas and the individual plaintiffs that brought the challenge to the Affordable Care Act as I said, uh, they characterize it as seven different bases of standing. Even if they prevailed on just one of those, then the case, is, case goes forward. Now, however, if the, if the defenders of the ACA are able to knock out all seven of those bases of standing, then the case goes away. Because if, the, if there's no standing, there's no jurisdiction, and then the case cannot be heard. Uh, and so there was quite a bit of questioning. It's logically the first issue that would come up, and it turns out in the questioning, that's where the justices led off uh, was on the standing issue. Can you talk a little bit about um, state standing? Uh, so it was kind of interesting to see the California Solicitor General have to um, argue against standing when, in fact, you know, it's really important for the state of California to be able to uh, you know, sue over legislation in federal court. But this idea of state standing has been evolved, evolving in the Supreme Court, right? And um, 
Can can you explain kind of the ebbs and flows of that? Sure. So it's it's uh, standing is kind of more straightforward when you have an individual, right? It's kind of easier to track whether they've been injured or not. Have they lost money? Are they injured in some other way? Um, with the state, obviously, it's tri- trickier because it's a it's a large entity, um, a sovereign. Uh, and so, yes, uh, you're right that the California SG was in a little bit of an awkward position because they want to preserve their ability to bring challenges in the future and yet cast doubt on, on, on the standing of Texas and the other uh, red states, if you will, that brought this challenge. Uh, so here, I think it's helpful to take a step back on, on standing. There were really, I know that uh, the Texas SG said seven theories of standing. I think, as I would explain it, there are really three theories of standing, two of which bear on the state. Um, the, 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 the first and most straightforward maybe is just the individual theory mm-hmm. of standing, which is basically, look, the statute said I, sh- I have to obtain coverage. I did obtain insurance coverage even though I didn't want it, and therefore I'm injured, right? That's kind of mm-hmm. theory number one. Theory number two is, th- is uh, the state's direct injury, which is a pocketbook injury. The state basically saying, hey, look, without the individual mandate, less people would enroll in Medicaid and the state foots the bill for Medicaid and therefore our costs are going up. And then they have another pocketbook injury that says, hey, look, there's a whole lot of paperwork that happens when people uh, uh, obtain coverage because of the individual mandate. So that's their direct injury. Uh, and, and, and on that one, I will say the main objection was one not of theory or legal principle, but rather of proof. That is the state... Uh, Uh, the other side argued hadn't put in any proof about it. Uh, And then the third theory of standing is really kind of the one that the United States embraced. Remember here, DOJ somewhat unusually joined the challengers in attacking the federal law. And there, out out of the three theories of standing, as I've simplified them, they only embraced this last one, which was referred to as the standing by inseverability theory. And that's a theory which is a novel theory. That is, no, there's no direct injury suffered by either the individuals or the state from the individual mandate provision itself, but rather they're injured by other provisions of the Affordable Care Act that no one contends is unlawful. And yet, they say, because those other provisions would fall if the individual mandate were unconstitutional, they've now been injured in that fashion. So it's a step-removed sort of injury. That's where I think um, uh, there was probably the most questioning of all because that would have significant implications going forward, not just for states, but for individuals as well. And so just to kind of put a bow on the standing aspect of this, Pratik, do you think there's any chance that the case could actually be decided on standing? One thing I'm wondering is this. you know, it seems like if it comes to severability, right, we know where the case is going to go. But I'm wondering if particularly the Republican appointees on the court, because standing, even though it is this kind of technical thing, does have a political valence to it in where in which, you know, plaintiffs have a tough time bringing cases in general. So I'm wondering kind of to spin out a theory, whether the Republican appointees might look at this case and say, we see where the writing is on the wall now that we have this supermajority, can we come up with a decision here that lets the ACA stand, which it's going to anyway, but also make a nice little you know, standing decision for us, which makes it harder for plaintiffs to bring cases in general in future cases? 
What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's a good observation. I think that's what makes the standing issue so tricky here. I mean, there's a couple things that make it tricky. Uh, one is the fact, as I mentioned, there's multiple theories of standing. And while each justice attacked at least one theory of standing, as I said, you only need to win on one basis of standing to prevail. So that makes it a little tricky how, to, how it's going to come out. And then the other big point that makes it tricky is the one that you just raised, which is there's a little bit of cross um, uh, working at cross purposes here. Usually, as you say, conservative justices tend to be a little bit more parsimonious about standing, whereas the liberal justices tend to be more generous uh, about standing. And yet, um, uh, I think it's the liberal justices who are most fa- look most favorably on the ACA at, and vice versa. And so I think it is tricky to do the calculus. You know, one possible avenue is that you have a majority of justices, and I think this will happen. At the very least, you will have a majority of, of justices that um, um, disavow or reject this standing by inseverability theory. Uh, it was really only Justice Alito at argument that seemed to embrace it. And of the justices who addressed it, of which there were a number on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, uh, no one seemed to think of it very favorably. So whether or not they find it standing on one of the other grounds, either the state pocketbook injury or the individuals feeling compelled to buy insurance, I do tend to think that a majority of the court will reject the DOJ's defense of this standing by inseparability theory. So um, I predicted on Twitter that uh, the ACA would not fall, which means that um, the justices are going to do everything they can to make sure that it does um, to prove me wrong. So uh, let's imagine that world where the ACA um, is struck down, the entire ACA. What happens in that scenario? Is there anything in place um, to replace it? Uh, no, and that and that's the scary part. Um, um, uh, there is nothing in place, and normally one would say, "Okay, well, you know, the court has to do its job, and Congress does its job." Um, but lives are at stake here, right? In in a very real sense, and uh, and I think beyond all of the legal arguments, which I think are extremely strong for the defenders of the ACA on the severability issue. But even putting aside that, the justices are not, um, um, while that comes first and foremost, they're not blind to the reality here. And we don't, we're not in a situation where we can count on Congress uh, the next day to pick up legislation to fix or, or fill the gap that would be left by striking down the ACA. So I would say even in a world where it was a close call on severability, uh, I think the court would have strong institutional and, and practical reasons to um, put a thumb on the scale on the side of severability that is upholding the rest of the ACA. And when you're in this situation where the legal arguments seem to be overwhelmingly in favor of, of severability, um, I think all of those align uh, for a finding that would avoid the, um, uh, that will prove you correct, Kimberly, in your prediction. <laughs> So let's get to where we're going here then. Let's talk about this severability issue and why the case is going to be decided on those grounds. Tell us about that. Sure. So again, severability is just a fancy legal term for what do you do when you strike down just one provision of a, con- of a statute, uh, whether it's un- unlawful or unconstitutional. What happens to the rest of the statute? Um, the court has jurisprudence on this issue, as you might expect. It comes up a lot. 
Um, and basically, and, and, and Kimberly, you referenced this earlier, two times last term this issue came up. And in both cases, one written by the Chief Justice, the other by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by seven justices of the court collectively in both opinions, uh, the court reaffirmed what it called a strong presumption of severability. And that means the court basically said, when we strike down one provision of a statute as unconstitutional, there's a strong presumption of upholding the rest of the statute unless Congress has given some clear indication that either it would prefer the entire statute to be invalid or that the rest of the statute is no longer functional without the single invalidated provision. So that's the severability issue. And here that is really the ballgame because basically, as everyone I think would agree, uh, that's involved in this case on both sides, no one really cares about the individual mandate anymore. It's been zeroed out. That's what Congress did in 2017. President Trump and Republican members of Congress have been trumpeting since that day that they've effectively repealed the individual mandate. It's no longer on the books as far as they're concerned. So no one really cares about the individual mandate itself anymore. But what they care about, of course, is the rest of the ACA. So that's why severability is front and center. Even if you assume that the individual mandate is now constitutional, then what happens to the rest of the ACA? If it's severable, then nothing happens. And we go on pretty much uh, with the status quo. Well, maybe one thing that people are wondering about is Justice Barrett in this case, just because it was such a big focus of her confirmation hearings and you know, I guess, Pratik, since you are so confident about the result, let's make this more difficult for you and have you tell us what the vote count is going to be and within that, what you think Justice Barrett is going to do. <laughs> you are making it more difficult. So I will say for Justice Barrett, um, unlike the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh, who laid their cards on the table, um, she was much harder to read. I think her questions, um, she didn't really focus on severability. Her questions were mostly directed towards standing in the merits, and I, uh, I, I would uh, glean from those questions, again, they were pretty even-handed, but I would glean a skepticism on the constitutionality of the individual mandate. Um, uh, and that was shared by uh, most of the justices on the right side of the court. In fact, I would say every justice, except for the chief justice, who didn't ask any questions about the merits of the individual mandate, Every other justice, including Justice Barrett, I think their questioning, while not definitive, did express a skepticism about the constitutionality of the individual mandate. So I will go on record and say that I think her vote will probably be inclined to find the individual mandate unconstitutional. Um, and, and my bet is uh, that she will join the chief, Justice Kavanaugh, and the more liberal justices in upholding the rest of the ACA. Um, as severable. Now that, of course, is a guess because she didn't ask uh, any questions about it. But but I think it will be a majority of uh, of more than five. Uh, I I don't think this one is a close call. I, I I'm not so bold as to say it'll be unanimous on severability. Um, but 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 I think we could have a lopsided majority. Yeah, and we learned during her confirmation hearings that she actually set in on a mock. Um, trial of this case and had voted not to strike down the entire law that is 
that she voted that it was the individual mandate was severable. So, of course, that has no bearing on this case at all. It was just theoretical, the mock trial. But <laughs> well, 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 Kimberly, since you mentioned it, I was actually the advocate in that yeah. mock trial. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I won't say anything further uh, than, than what you said. Uh, it was an academic exercise, but um, um, but yes, uh, everything you said is true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you uh, taking some time to chat with us today about this case. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, we're expecting a decision in that Obamacare case by the end of June, so we'll have to wait until then to see exactly how it comes down. But until next time, thanks for listening. And you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, and I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.